Good morning and happy Easter. Uh, my name is Ken Weitzma, and it's good to, to have everybody here in this crowd right uh, in this little area is learning next week to sit in a different section of the theater because of the drums. So um, you guys are the lucky ones. Uh, and to, this morning we're going to have the message is called uh, The Gospel According to Ricky Bobby. And so we're just going to cut right into a video and see where we're going. So. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of dominoes, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker. And Texas Ranger, or TR as we call. Also want to thank you for my best friend and teammate, Cal Naughton Jr., who's got my back no matter what. Shake and bake. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Dear tiny Jesus, your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up fist palm. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. And I'm in the front row. Hey, Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am. So maybe that was funny to some people. Maybe it was offensive to others. But the point is this. Uh... There's something in it that's that's a huge issue for uh, us in our view of God and our view of spirituality, and that's this: we are in we live in a day and age where it has become fashionable to grab little pieces of the things of of spiritual things or sacred texts or or whatever is uh, on the latest show about religion, and we grab the pieces that we like and we add them to our hand, this, this kind of this deck of cards or, or hand of cards that we've got, and we just grab little pieces and we kind of put it together. Does that make sense? We take little strands, rip them out of context, because we like that little part, whether it's baby Jesus or whether it's, I like the ethics of Jesus, but not the whole Lord part of Jesus. 
Uh, I like the serve the poor part, but I don't like the be obedient part. Or I, whatever it is, we just take little strands and we just kind of fill our own little set and then we, we're kind of proud because, look, look, it's kind of fun. This is my own thing. I've got ownership of my spirituality right here. And, uh, and it's fun. I put it together. It's original. It's unique. And I have a friend that wrote something about this. And this is one of the fallouts of that view of spirituality. And he says this, furthermore... The extremely existential basis for that kind of philosophy practically eliminates the role of community in a person's life. There's no way to build relationships around a philosophy that is so radically individualistic. And so the idea is when we put our own belief system together, we take it and we assemble it and we craft it and we put our own stamp on it and it's ours it is completely different than everyone else's belief system that's doing the same thing. And the whole idea of community is that you come together and you've got shared values. I mean, there's something in the middle that's common to everybody, and so you can rally around that and have fellowship. Does that make sense? And so when we piece together our own little view, our own little religion, we're going to be completely distinct from and isolated from everybody else. And so one of the first things that goes with this view that's kind of popular today um, is the need for church or the need for community, and we end up lonely. And everyone will say they're lonely, but we're so proud about our own little religious set that we don't even realize we're doing it to ourselves. We know that social anarchy is bad. I mean, I've never heard anyone other than the, the guy in high school that was always etching little, like, A's with a circle, like, anarchy into his desk, you know. There's one random guy that thinks, you know, anarchy would be cool, and that's because he hates his own life, you know. And if there was chaos out there and it would match the chaos in here, he'd be pretty excited. But everybody else knows that if you just did what you wanted to do and there was no rules and no order, it would just be chaos. You know, if uh, everyone at the traffic circle just went all at the same time, you know, we don't have stoplights here, traffic circles, but... If, if there was no order, there were no rules, there were no structure, there was nothing in common in the middle, it would be chaos. And what we've got in this country, at least right now, is we've got religious or spiritual chaos. And the part of it is we've made it all about ourselves, because in America we're a vacuum of selfishness. Just, and when it's all about self and spirituality, that word has come to mean just my own, my own sense of... Uh, well-being, my own inner peace, my own, my own, my own, my own. Does that make sense? It's, it has nothing to do with anything outside of me but my own spirituality. And that's where we get all this from. We lump together kind of this view. And what we've done is we've effectively cut off the need for anything outside of ourselves that's objective, that's structured, that's real, that's authoritative, that's worth kind of submitting to and building my life around. And so we have spiritual anarchy. And it's chaos, you know. And so Easter's the only Sunday that anyone will go to church. Um, but we've got this kind of anarchy, and, and here's the deal with this. If every man is for himself, it leaves every man by himself, okay? If every man is for himself, it leaves every man by himself. And that is just so far from the picture we get in Scripture. And so what I want to do is just step back, and I want to try and get us in tune with the story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible is unified. It's got all these different little shades and all these different little directions and angles and things like that, but it's one unified story from the beginning all the way to the end. 
And the story is this. It is God rebuilding, remaking a relationship with people, um, calling back these people and saving them um, to himself. Okay? And Jesus is huge, and you think, well, where's Jesus at the beginning of the Bible? And it's more abstract, and so I've, I've used the you know, illustration of, uh, it's like a bow tie. And it starts big and kind of abstract, and as you go through the Bible and you get to the life of Jesus, it's like the knot. It all kind of comes to this climax. And then out of Easter Sunday, it begins to spread out and affect everything kind of going this way. Does that make sense? And I'm going to just try and give you a quick tour of, of some of these passages so you know what I mean. Right after man who was with God, had a relationship with God, fell away, God pronounces this judgment. And he says this to the serpent that had tempted Eve. He says, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animal, and you will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, that's believed to just be the first of any kind of um, foresight to Jesus who would come and and crush the head of of the devil or Satan or the serpent or or however you want to put that. And so when Mel Gibson made his movie, if you guys saw that a couple years ago, he had a scene in the garden where there's a, a, like a snake coming and like all of a sudden, because everything in that movie was graphic, you know, so all of a sudden there's like a 50-foot heel on the screen and it just crushes this like snake's head. And that's where that was coming from. So moving along in Genesis, here's uh, Abraham takes his son Isaac up because God was testing him. He says, the only son that was promised to you and was was born to a woman who wasn't supposed to have kids, that promised son, okay? Take him and sacrifice him. And Abraham's like, I just don't get it. So obviously he doesn't tell his wife. He just takes his son and goes. Uh, And when he gets to the place, Isaac says, you know, where's the sacrifice? And, And Abraham says, God will provide it. And so they go up and God says this finally. Uh, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven saying, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, replies Abraham. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from, from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. So he went over to this ram and he sacrificed the ram instead. God provided the sacrifice, Okay. And so here's this thing of a man like, like us, a man or a woman or whatever, taking the best of what we have and being willing to give it to God to try and restore this relationship. And God says, no, 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 I've got it. I've got it. It's going to be my only son that's going to do that. And this is foreshadowing to when Christ is going to come and God provides the sacrifice. In Isaiah, we see this, and it's a famous kind of a passage. Um, and... Uh, and of course, I can't find it, but that's all right. Um, your, skin, your sins are like scarlet, and I'm going to wash you white as snow. And so you see kind of early on this whole idea of salvation with God is, is a lot of it political, a lot of it bringing you out of oppression. So the idea is in Exodus, you see the Israelites are in Egypt, and God is going to bring them out and put them in a place where he can be their God and be with them. And so you've got the whole thing where 
the, the firstborn son gets killed. And so you're probably familiar with that story, but there's all the plagues. And then the last plague is take a, a little lamb and kill the lamb, put blood on your door, and it's a gruesome picture. And when you do that, I'm going to pass over that house, and that chi- your child's not going to die. And so the Passover meal in the Jewish calendar was always remembering back to when God freed the Israelites from Egypt um, with this whole passing over the houses, that the sons were spared because there was lambs that were offered up instead. Okay, so there's this kind of political aspect of it. But when we get to Isaiah, we really begin to see that there's this spiritual component, that you know, your, your sins are like scarlet, but I'm going to wash you white as snow. That really, not only what's separating you from me, it's not only where you reside and whether you're free politically, geopolitically it's also just the sin in your life you're bent and i'm a holy pure god and there's a separation because you're messed up and you're over there and i'm gonna fix that i'm gonna save you and i'm gonna restore you i'm gonna do it in isaiah chapter 53 we read about this what's it's called the passage of the suffering servant again this is foreshadowing christ and it says this who has believed our message And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one uh, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And surely... He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. For we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amazingly clear passage foreshadowing the salvation that God is going to bring through Jesus Christ. It's beginning to narrow down to this life of Jesus when he lives, teaches, dies, and is raised from the dead again. This Easter season 2,000 years ago. And so what is going on in Scripture, this, the whole story is God zealously chasing after his people to bring them back into a relationship with him. And to do that, he has to save them. He has to bring salvation. And so um, that is what it's about. Okay. Now we can open the Bible to any passage um, and we can see little things and little principles and little ways of living and they're all a part of the story. They're all things that we can take and put into our life. But if we don't get the whole context and realize that that is what God is doing, it's what he's up to, we're going to miss it. Because I'll never get tired of saying this. Um, Aristotle was the first one to bring into formal language the whole concept of means and ends. And maybe that's new to you and and maybe it's not. But means and ends simply means this. There's things that are means to an end. Okay, a bridge is a means to an end of what? Getting to the other side. Okay, and it's how you get to the other side. It's the means by which you get to your goal. Does that make sense? Okay, salvation for Christians is a means. Salvation for God is a means 
by which he restores us into relationship with him. Okay, I'll never get tired of saying this. The, the whole goal is not to be saved. It's not just to have your sins forgiven. Your sins are forgiven so that you can be restored to God. The bumper sticker that says, Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven, doesn't really get it. You know, the bumper sticker should say, Christians are really messed up, okay, because we are. Yet, we have this relationship with God, glory be, hallelujah, okay? Um, so it's a means to an end. And here's the, the illustration for me when it really crystallized is, um, before Jesus, how were your sins forgiven? And they were, they were forgiven by coming to the temple, and God dwelt in the temple. And so you had, you had this temple complex, and there's, there's a, an altar, and you go further, and there's kind of the holy place, and you go further, and there's this little box where nobody can go in, this little room, not a box, but like a square room. And God's going to dwell there with his spirit so he can be with his people in, in Jerusalem, right? That's the temple. So you got the altar, and then you got the holy place, and the holy of holies where God dwells, okay? And so people would come, and they would have to make sacrifice um, on that altar to cleanse themselves so that they could have fellowship with God, to be pure so that they could mix with a pure God. Okay, does that make sense? That altar was all about your sins being forgiven, and God dwelled in this place here. Now, in Matthew 27, when Jesus dies... Um, there's a real interesting, you know, little dialogue about what happens. But what it says happens is at that moment when he died, and just like it said in Isaiah 53, those sins were paid for. Okay, right then, the temple veil, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies, that, that veil, that curtain, the barrier between God and man, the symbolic barrier, it ripped. Okay, did it, it didn't rip from bottom to top. Uh, it's not like one of Jesus' followers ran in there and, and took it and yanked on it. It ripped from where? Top to bottom. Okay? This is the big thing that's going on. Now, if Jesus dying was, all, if the end, the end goal, God's end game, was all about just forgiveness of sins, period. This is the work I'm going to do. Your sins are forgiven now. I'm going to go away. I'm, I've done my work. If that was what God was really up to, okay? then at the moment Jesus died and the sins were paid for, what should have happened? That altar should have like cracked up or like a laser beam come and like burn it up or whatever, okay? But that altar and, and the, pay, the payment for our sins was always a means to the end of being able to restore our relationship with God because God loves us and God wants relationship. And when we don't get it right, Okay, what God's end game is, what the story is all about. We end up with religion. Um, and I hate a lot of the things about religion. If I go to a barbecue at your house, don't ever ask me to pray. Because I'm not the only Christian there. Okay, and I, it makes me feel like I'm paid to do religious duties. And that's not the point. Okay, church is not about religious duties like this barrier still exists between us and God and it's all about forgiving sins and, and um, hierarchies and that's not it. It's not it at all. When we realize what it's really about, the temple veil is gone and we have this fellowship with God, then church doesn't become about dispensing religious duties it, comes about, it becomes about together coming and fellowshipping and worshiping God, being with God together. Okay, you go all the way to the end of the book. So when this whole thing expands out, 
what happens in the book of Revelation. As you see all of God's people together worshiping him, it's, it's unity, it's relationship. And so it's not about religious duties and me dispensing. It's about our relationship with God corporately and individually. That's what it's about. And so the name for Jesus, um, when he did come on at Christmas, the Christmas Jesus, his name shall be called Emmanuel. Okay? His name shall be called Emmanuel, not, um, and what does that mean? It means God with us. I'll just, very simply. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And, uh, and it shows us something about God. It shows us that from the beginning, God has been saving his people. He's been with us every step of the way, trying to bring us back and trying to save us. And so our God has his sleeves rolled up. Our God has his sleeves rolled up, and he's been right in the middle of it since the beginning, working on behalf of his people. And when Jesus comes, he says, I'm going to name him. I've got my sleeves rolled up. (laughs) I'm coming to be with you. I'm not far off. I'm not distant. I I don't not get what's going on in your life. I understand it. And I'm doing something about it because I want you to be back with me and I want this relationship to be established. And so when we get the story, not just a little piece of a story, not just cutting out a snippet, ripping something out of context, but when we get the whole story, okay, when we get that and join into that, we're going to have our sleeves rolled up too. We're going to do what we see our Father do. We're going to do what has captured our hearts because it's on His heart. And we're going to jump right in the middle of it. So if you can turn quick, feel free to, to follow with me. But let me just give you a couple verses here. Uh, go to a couple passages. In Ephesians. In Ephesians, we see this. It talks about salvation in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. So Ephesians 2, 8. It says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from works. It is the gift of God. God's the one doing it. Not by works so that no man can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you want to understand what spiritual growth is all about? What spirituality ought to be about? It's not not sitting here like a selfish human vacuum, sucking things in and weaving together our own creative things so that when we get into a, a parlor discussion about spirituality, we can say something really novel and interesting. And people, oh, that's really interesting. Where did you get that from? You know, spirituality is not about that. Spiritual growth is not about that. Um, you don't grow by sitting down. Anyone that's ever um, been in a gym knows that. Uh, anyone that's ever seen starving kids knows that you don't grow by not doing anything. You grow by getting out and exercising and taking in and working it out, okay? And so what we were created to do is good works, and God prepared those in advance for us. Our spiritual growth, our joining with God and our being a part of Him and, and being a part of this story involves us getting up and working and doing what God has for us. If you turn to John chapter 15, let me give it to you one more way. John chapter 15 in verse 15, it says this. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. 
Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And then my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And this is my command, that you love each other. So the story of God from the beginning, uh, I am the one that saves. And salvation is a means to an end of us being in this together. And so Jesus reiterates that and says, I've, I've brought you into this. I now call you friends because you're, you're, you're able to do what I'm doing. And this is what it is. Go and bear fruit and fruit that will last. And God will bless you. He'll be with you. He'll answer your prayers. And this is really the command, the thing that wraps it up. Love each other. That's just the word that, that just drives it all for Jesus. Just love each other. And so you're not at church this morning because you're bored. I honestly believe that, okay? You're not here because you're bored and you have nothing else to do. I think you're here. I think everyone is here because deep down inside, you desire something. You want it to click. Just, God, I, it's so hard um, I just can't get into it. It's like a, a river. And somehow in our lives, we're always kind of on the edge of the river where there's no current. And it's, we're struggling and we can't really get there. And at some point, we hit the current. And it's like you don't even have to do anything more. Current just takes you. And we don't really get it. And so we're, we're trying to find that current. God, where is it when I finally get swept up and when I finally can get pulled into it? Because I desire something. Why? I don't even know why I desire it. You desire it because you were made for it. God created you. He knit you together. And he's got jobs out there and work out there and people that need to be loved out there with your name written on it. He prepared those in advance for you that you could go and bear that fruit. And so you know it because it's built into your DNA. And so uh, every president's known for something and there's like a lot of funny lines like, you know, uh, I didn't in- inhale, you know, um, no new taxes, fear, uh, you know, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And so every president eventually gets known for one little one-liner. Uh, and with JFK, it was, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That's pretty amazing out of one of the most wildly popular, legendary presidents ever, that that's the one line we always pick up on. Have you ever thought about that? Why did that one line resonate so much? It's so obvious, right? Live for something bigger than yourself, that we all are responsible somehow for this. But it was so amazing because we don't do it. We don't, nobody really lives that out. We all deep down know that that's what it's about, but it doesn't happen. And so the reason that phrase became so wildly popular was it strummed that, string, that chord deep in us. And it's like, oh, that's true. It rings true. And truth is persuasive, isn't it? When you hear something that's, that's just true, it's got a persuasiveness to it. It's compelling. And we heard that and we realized, you know what, that's right. And no, it doesn't really happen. And that's kind of where we're at with, with Christianity is that deep down inside, uh, we are in a consumeristic culture where we're just big blobs and we, we've got a remote just, you know, 
stitched to our hand and we're couch potatoes and it doesn't matter what we do. We get in the car and where do we go? We go to stores. Why? Because we're going to consume more things. We're going to buy more things and we go through our days consuming. We're consumers and we compare which, you know, Target or Walmart, you know, neither. Um, it's, it's, it's really, which is it? And it's all about me as a consumer. Which one's going to meet my needs the best? Which one... Um, is the cleanest, or which one has the lowest prices, or which one meets my needs the best? And we're con- we're born into a consumeristic culture. There's some I forgot. I just yesterday heard the statistic on the number of commercials we see a day, and it and I already forgot it because um, I have bad short term memory <laughs> from college. Um, the uh, <laughs> there's a lot of commercials that we see every day, and the whole idea is it's treating us like consumers, and we are stamped as consumers. And we don't know how to get out of it, brothers and sisters. We're, we're here, and we're taken, and we're evaluating. It's like this religion, that religion, or this part of the body. You know, I'm, I'm weaving together my own little reality at all times, and it's so hard to get out of that. But God created you for more. Uh, he created you for a purpose. He made you for a distinct, specific reason. And until we find what God created us for, until we become a player in, in, in this grand story, until we get into that current and we're with God, with, with what he's doing, we're, we're together. We have fellowship with the Spirit in terms of God's purpose. Until we find that, we're going to be dissatisfied because we were made for something more than just to consume. I don't want to just be a big blob. I don't think... You want to just be a big blob. And we've got to somehow see the story, the big picture, the narrative that God is saving us as a means to an end of this together relationship where we together go out and minister. And we have a mission in the world. And when we see that, maybe, just maybe, um, that, that, that sense of truth, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can maybe that truth will ring somewhere deep down inside of us and we'll come along and we'll j- and just jump in. You're made for something more than just to sit. I mean, if God wanted us to just sit, He would have made our bodies different, right? We'd have been a lot bigger here, um, you know, and we would have had one arm that was longer than the other so you could reach the remote anywhere in the room. Just like gadget arm type stuff. I mean, if God wanted us just to be couch potatoes, he would have designed us different. But that's not what God wants for you. And some of you, that's all you needed to hear this morning. That's what you came for. Um, you can go to sleep now. Um, but we're not supposed to be blobs. So we're going to take a time out here. And the worship team is just going to come up and sing a song. And I want you just to reflect on this. You are God's workmanship. You are made in his workshop to do good works. Plead with yourself deep down inside that you might well up enough desire to get up, break the moment of inertia, and actually see what there is in this world for you to do. Think about that as these saints sing. The movie, uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, maybe you remember, it drew just a lot of controversy. And I really believe Christians shouldn't boycott things because then people like me have to go watch them. Um, and uh, it really wasn't that crazy of a movie. And here's the basic premise. Um, uh, Jesus on the cross um, has this angel of light come to him and say, 
you've done enough, you can get down now. Um, so Jesus gets excited, comes down, ends up getting married to Mary Magdalene, has kids, lives a good productive life, just living uh, as a normal man would. Um, and then towards the end of his life, uh, he's dying and he's on his deathbed and his disciples come in, three of them. And Judas is just mad as hell at Jesus. And you were supposed to die. You were supposed to raise from the again. God called you to that. You know, you're a coward, Jesus. You're a coward and just yelling at him. And Jesus is pleading with him. He goes, but you don't understand. You don't understand. Um, and finally, he gets the words out. And he says, but the angel of light came to me and said it was, it was okay. And the angel of light in the movie was like a seven, eight-year-old, very innocent-looking girl. And, and it kind of walked with Jesus from the time he got off the cross until this time late in his life. And he's you know, pleading with Judas, you don't understand, the angel of light came to me. And right at that moment, the angel of life changes. And the angel of light was deceiving Jesus. It was actually Satan. And Satan, that's what a temptation is, right? It doesn't speak the truth. Went to Jesus on the cross and masqueraded as an angel of light and tricked him into coming down off the cross so that salvation wouldn't be brought and, and he, he wouldn't die for people's sins, etc. And so Jesus just realizes his mistake and freaks out and crawls off his deathbed back kind of onto this hill and starts pleading with God in some sense to take him back and let him finish what he'd started. And right then it cuts back to the scene earlier in the movie when he was on the cross being crucified. And a smile, he looks to the left, looks to the right, and a smile kind of comes to Jesus' face and then he looks up to heaven and he, he says, it is accomplished, and he dies. And that's where the title of the movie comes from, The Last Temptation of Christ. That in the last minutes of his crucifixion, that was the temptation. And a good half of that movie was just walking out what that temptation was. It's pretty creative, actually, right? Um, but there's one part where it's just amazing to me. Jesus walks up on Paul, and Paul is preaching. And he's preaching about Jesus who died for your sins and then rose again on the third day. And Jesus calls Paul a liar. You're a liar. And, and they go off to the side and they have this dialogue. And Jesus is like, I didn't die. I didn't rise on the third day. I'm right here. I'm the one that was preaching and teaching in Galilee. And, and you're lying. And, and Paul looks at him and he just could just disbelief. And he says, well, what good are you to these people? then what good are you? You know, and it's just this amazing little interchange with Paul and, and obviously it's fantasy. Jesus ends up dying and it was all in his head kind of thing. But it's this amazing interchange. And so I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and just show you kind of this last piece. The last piece for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. And chapter 15, verse 16, it says this. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Okay, a lot of people act like the resurrection, whether he rose from the dead or not, it doesn't matter because I'm a, I'm, I've got spirituality. You know, I've worked together this amalgam, the gospel according to Ricky Bobby. I've put together my own thing. And it doesn't matter if I took the resurrection piece or not. And Paul's saying, no, it absolutely matters. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you're still messed up. 
you're still far from God. And it doesn't matter what your feelings are like. You're estranged from God. Verse 18, uh, if, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, the dead people, are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Christianity is a horrible self-help religion. It's horrible. It's not a good... Because it doesn't help the self. It seeks to kill the self. It, it, does. it says you have to die and then say, you know what? This is the old self and now I'm living out a whole new life for living for Christ in fellowship with God and I'm on mission. I've got things to do. I, I need to hurry up. I don't want to waste any time. It doesn't just fix the one little problem you want or whatever. It's not a self-help religion. Okay? And if, so if you don't take the whole thing, it doesn't really work. So I've grappled with how does this look? And the idea with the Jesus dying and then rising again is like God has brought this car and it's, it's all put together and it works. And he's saying, I want to now grab hold of you and take you with me. Get in the car. Your old life is over. Now you're hopping in the car. We're going to go together. And we walk up to the car and we start pulling spark plugs and stuff for our, our scooter. You know, that's really what we do. We go and we grab little pieces. Well, I could use this wire rip, you know, and I could use this. And we go and we're like trying to build our little scooter and we never go anywhere because we're piecing together our own little spirituality. And God's saying, don't you get it? It's already done. It's already there. It's fixed. It's objective. And it's the same for all of you. Get on board and be with me. And it's so night and day that it, it reminds me of C.S. Lewis has a little meditation. He calls it meditation in a tool shed, just little three pages. And he says, you know, he's walking into this tool shed and there's a beam of light coming through a hole in the ceiling. And he's looking at the light and he can see the light. And he, he's looking at the things that the light is shining on and he can see those things because of the light. And, he, and he's kind of marveling at this. And then he walks over and he stands in the beam of light and now a whole new reality opens up. Because he can now look along that beam of light and see the source of the light, out the little hole in the roof and, and back to where the source of the light is. Does that make sense? And I think that Christianity is such a paradox because the people who get it and the people that don't, it's such a small, minor little difference. And when we don't get it, we're just looking at it. There it is. It's the light. It's shining on things. It's about forgiveness. I know it. Jesus died. Yep, got it. You know, cool. I'm forgiven. I'm not perfect. And we, we look at these things, and it, it makes a lot of sense, and we think we've got it. And what we've got to do, what Christ called us to do, what the imagery of baptism where, where you go down and you kind of die to the old self and you come up risen with, the, with Christ. And so in the New Testament, the phrase en Christos, in Christ, is all over the place. That's the way it's described, that you're in Christ, that you're, you're kind of now standing in the stream of thought of what the story is about. And you look along it and you're like, ah, oh, I get it. It all opens up to me now. It's so different. I'm not just looking at it. I'm standing in it, looking through it and along it, and it makes all the difference in the world. I don't want to grab spark plugs anymore. I want to get in the car and, and labor with God to reach a world that he loves and that, you know what, I need to love too. And so that's kind of the picture in my mind of what it looks like. And so here's a quote 
that I, I read in a magazine that, uh, this week that I really liked. This is the picture of what it ought to look like. If we really get it, then we'll realize uh, we, th- this vision of Christianity will be realized by releasing the latent potential of all believers, moving many of them into effective ministry for God's kingdom, where in the past they simply sat in pews, hearers instead of doers of God's word. The New Testament never suggests that the work of God would or even could be done entirely by professional pastors and missionaries. The New Testament never suggests that the work of God would or even could be done entirely by professional pastors and missionaries. The world is too big and the needs are too great. A global spiritual awakening will only take place when average ordinary Christians catch the vision. And I think you catch the vision by understanding what Christ came to do. Not to break up the altar, but to, to, to rip the veil in two so that we who were far could now be near. We who were estranged from God could now be with God. And so I read another one line this week that just riveted me. And this guy said this. He said, um, I'm still recovering from my conversion. And I loved that phrase. Because if we understand conversion rightly, if we understand what it means to get in the stream of what God's doing, to get out in the middle of the river where the current is, to stand in the light and look along it and to be changed by it, when we really understand what that's all about, it rocks everything to the core. Paul said it. We're the biggest fools if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Why? Because if Jesus rose from the dead and we're following him, everything is different. We're not consumers anymore. We're players in this whole thing. Our priorities are different. It's not about ourselves. We're just giving stuff away and people are looking at us and saying, you're an idiot. What about your retirement? What about if bad things happen to you and you've given all this stuff away and you say, you know what? God's got me. And if, you know, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, yeah, I'm a real idiot, but he did. He did rise from the dead. And so my prayer is that more Christians would need, they would have a conversion that they'd need to recover from. You know, I pray on all of you this morning that you would have an encounter with God that would just rock you so to the core, destroy you, knock out the pieces in your life, throw off your equilibrium, mess everything up, that friends are leaving you because you're now a, a ridiculous fool, that you don't even know up from down, it's all inside out, that life is just so out of whack. That's your conversion, that you'd have to recover from it. You'd be like, I'm a recovering converted Christian, you know. I'm, I'm two years into, like, trying to figure out my life again. You know, but I'm beginning to do the work I was created to do, what God made me to do. I'm finding my purpose. And it is so, so sweet. So may you have a conversion <laughs> worth recovering from. Amen. Uh, let's pray, and then the, the guys are going to play for us, and we're going to begin taking the offering and um, if you've got those cards, we'd love it if you just put those in the offering bucket when it comes by. But let's pray. God, it must be so difficult for you to be patient with us when we always look at the things, but never along the, the stream. We never really understand that you love us. 
and that love desires to be in relationship and that you want us with you. And we always just look at religious stuff like sin and salvation and forgiveness and we misdiagnose those things and we, we, we think it's the end game and it's not. And I just pray for this church that week in and week out, even Monday through Saturday, that this church and the leaders of this church, that we would all be able to grapple with this grace that is so amazing that doesn't just rescue us, but that brings us into your house as sons and daughters and that we can share in the work that you're doing. The happiness, the joy that awaits us for living out the calling, what we were made to do, the way we were designed, the passions you gave us, the gifts and talents you gave us, the joy that's going to come from living that out. Father, bring that to us. Let us get excited about you in Christ's name.